We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton, for the stay. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Boss of the People. In this episode, it's me, Diara, Miles, and Kaya talking about the news that you don't know from the past week. Kaya wasn't with us when we recorded together, but her news is here, as you'll see in a second. And then I sit down with Joe Spearman, a candidate for Austin City Council District 9. We chat about his experience as an entrepreneur and community leader and his unique campaign that addresses issues like affordability and housing, transit and mobility, equity and inclusion, and more. My advice for this week is to enjoy music you know like I've, I've been lucky to go to some concerts and I forgot how much I just like enjoyed music so if you have a chance to be around music to you know listen to songs that you used to love a long time ago like I was just catching up on Maroon 5 songs about Jane and I'm like that really was a good album it really was so here we go Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Diara Ballinger. I'm Miles E. Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Pharaoh Rapture. Andrea at DIY on Twitter. So, you know, sure, by the time this podcast comes out, everyone will be aware of the news, if not already, about the 10 killed and three wounded in a shooting by white supremacists in Buffalo in a supermarket. And folks were just, you know, when you read kind of the individual accounts of just people's family saying, you know, so-and-so was going to the store to pick up some things for dinner. Um, yeah, it's just a reminder um, Actually, I feel like Sade Lithkoth put it best on her Instagram when she said, a white supremacist drove hours to open fire on black people at a grocery store in Buffalo, looking over our shoulders for racist attacks, navigating daily microaggressions and trying to enjoy life simultaneously is not an easy task. Continue to protect your spirits, hearts and bodies. Keep joy close. We are both a vulnerable and impenetrable people. So that was one that um, kind of just helped me through the processing of it. But I, I just feel like at this point, I don't know how to process these things. But of course, you know, um, I don't know. I'm hoping one of you two has some some make sense, inspirational words to guide us because I'm, I'm at a loss on, on this one. Yeah. Um... I think I think it's always okay to let the melancholy of a moment or the rage that inspires a moment just like rest in you and just process it. I think that's a part of healing too. But um, the thing the thing that is that kind of this particular incident reminds me of is how the the attack on the ordinary life and our uh, in in our in the, the mundane is really under fire because that's really where. 
um, that's really to me like where like where Tara really like lives. When you feel like you can't do, when you can't go to church, when you can't go to the grocery store, and you know, I'm I I'm literally preaching to the prior because I can't imagine any black person. Um, not already feeling this, already getting to this type of bravery, but knowing that it's important for us to still participate in our mundane, ordinary, beautiful activities, because that is what the resistance is. That's what these things are, that these things are made to want to make us want to hide or separate. And I think to anybody who is of a place of racial power, um, you know, aka you know white people or anybody who um who is uh not being you know who's not <laughs> racially targeted by white supremacists i think that your job would have to be to try your best to maintain safety while people are doing mundane things and 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 and, and looking out and maybe look and looking side by side and treating every moment that you're in community like you're in a community you know i think sometimes we can be a whole bunch of moving individuals in one in one small space or um or in one or in one neighborhood and i think moments like this shows that no we all need to be eyes that look around and and we're all part of the same body and we're all cells of the same body and that's how we operate as a community and i think that if you're a place of racial power um i think that this is um a chance to wake up and stand up and 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 really use your 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 power to ensure that people can do these mundane things safely you know but i, I there's just nothing to tell black people at moments like this because you know um, sadly, it's it's routine, and we and, and we and we know what to do. You know, we know the healing process, we know the rage process, we know the the hope. We we know we know that process. You know, it's time for other people to make it so we don't have to be so learned in this process. I think there are a couple of things that sort of struck me about this. One is I don't know if you saw, but he live streamed this on Twitch. So they took the video down pretty quickly, but there was still. Uh, early parts of the video that were online that I saw not knowing what, like I saw it was on my time. I didn't know what it was until later. Cause I was at a festival with no cell phone reception when everything was, uh, when the news broke. But I will tell you, I did see one of the stills and it was just sad and evil. And I think there's, there's something about, um, there's no white supremacy that, that we just don't talk about the, the evilness of it all enough, right. That it becomes like, unkind and bad and not evil and it's like you know there's a lot of evil in that the other thing is that i really didn't know much and I, maybe y'all did i don't know if i just wasn't paying attention but the great replacement theory like i had never heard that phrase like i just wasn't i didn't know and and then this brought it all up that he he wrote that 180 page screed 18 year old boy 18 year old man you know white guy wrote 180 pages, but he is citing great replacement theory, which is this idea that white people are going to be overtaken by people of color, immigrants, and that they need to protect whiteness as a result of that. And how that was sort of a fringe um, idea. It was originated, the term originated in 2011 by um, this this writer who was actually, interestingly, a, a gay writer who had done really good work around queer theory or queer literature and then you know was also a raging white supremacist and white nationalist but there have been a lot of articles since the shooting just yesterday that have highlighted that great replacement theory has like been normalized on fox news rick perry like all these people have like actually just normalized this idea that is in, in a lot of ways feeding 
the racism of the moment today is this idea that white people will lose their power in, in this particular way, which is not new. Like the idea, white people being nervous about black power is not new. Um, but I hadn't heard this phrase. And I, you know, we talk about this all the time, but this idea that it seems like a, a big part of white supremacy too is this idea that people, white people are afraid that they will be treated any modicum of what they've done to other people, even when that's not, you know, that's not the way people are pushing back in this moment. But it was sort of, I don't know, the thought that like in Fox News and that there are governors highlighting replacement theory, whatever it is, as like a legitimate idea feels so wild. Yeah. And I think that's why we need to have boundaries around what we do platform, because I think a lot of times that I love that you brought up the, um, the, uh, the, the, the piece about evil is because I think a lot of times um, it's very obvious to us that, you know, generations are smarter and we're in no more theory. And, and, you know, you look at Twitter or social media or even the kind of media that a lot of like younger generations want to consume. It's way more sophisticated. We're having conversations about critical race theory and like, and like, should it be in schools? Like there's obviously like a way that kids are thinking that are different, but you know, intelligence and sophistication doesn't necessarily have a moral compass. <laughs> it just it just exists as a, as a, as, a, as a way. And these ideas, like um like the Great Replacement th- um idea, need to exist because now those people who want to do evil, they need theories behind it and ideas behind it, and they need people who who feel like scholarly when they're talking about it. And I think that we have to be really really careful when we platform certain people and 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 engage. and engage them because that's also giving people permission to recruit other people into into you know an an idea family that ends up doing actions like this and I just one quick thing to add because I just feel like this all comes down (laughs) to politics and the right trying to control um you know trying to control their power in in government and I think part of part of this ideology is that okay if you know if all the, <laughs> if all of these white folks who were leaning towards the right and i'm not saying that people that are leaning towards the right or on the right are white supremacists um but you know part of it is it's how do we get those folks to vote against their own self-interest right and i think the way they have always done that the way they have historically done that the way they did that after the civil war um was to give white men power and after the civil war white men were had the right poor white men had the right to use guns and freedmen freed black men didn't so i think part of this is like how can the power structure be so that they can control having the vote having people come out in droves to support them and part of that is getting people to subscribe to this racist ideology and white supremacy and now with these platforms miles to your point now it's like you know, it's just times 100. The message can spread faster. The psychological effects can, you know, they can get to folks quicker. So I think it's the same, you know, same stuff, different toilet, basically. But um, I guess this is this is just the world that we live in. Yeah, un- un- unfortunately. And again, I think that the big thing with, White folks right now, I think the I, I think the real big task, I'm pretty sure <laughs> there's probably no white person who's gonna be listening to this who's like who would, would identify as a white supremacist or even probably like right leaning, I'm thinking, unless like they're just like hate hate listening. 
Um, but I think the real work is to illuminate the consciousness of white people of white people to illuminate the consciousness of other white people that hey the, the 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 true power was taken once we decided to be labeled white once we were able to give up our dutchness and our italianness and our uh all these other like moles that we exist in and we were able to give we gave all our power to be to to assimilate into this like ambiguous white thing that guaranteed power like that was the first violent affront and i think that once white people illuminate the conscience of other white people that that's the that's where the power struggle is not with black people and with other people trying to gain um uh, the right to have to pursue happiness i think that's where that conversation ha- happens not like oh let's have let's have a far left liberal and a Ku Klux Klan member have a conversation and maybe they'll come to a middle ground like that's not where the conversations happen and I and I just something in me feels like a lot of what happened in the Trump administration and what can kind of continues to happen on news platforms and media platforms like this is the result of a lot of those things is that it just validates it and snowballs into a moment like this I'm mad the last thing I'm gonna say on this is I last week decided to watch Barack and Michelle Obama's last party at the White House in which they had all black people there and just one, the the one white uh, actor, I can't remember his name. He was in the movie with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, Bradley Cooper. And then they had Bell, they had everybody and it was on BET. That was the last party they had at the White House. And I thought to myself, no wonder we had Donald Trump in that White House. <laughs> Them white people probably lost their minds when they saw poison being performed at the White House. Okay. Listen, Eckhart Tolle told me a little thing. Well, Buddhism taught me a little thing about yin and yang. And there is nothing more yin or yanger <laughs> than that. <laughs> That's the yin and yangest thing I've ever heard or seen. <laughs> so... Uh, I love hip, to know me to know I love hip hop and uh, one of just my favorite artists, but also like one of my favorite hip hop artists, um, Kendrick Lamar, released a video and now an album this week. Um, I'm really interested in this um, in this video because he used deep fake technology with this company called Deep Voodoo. Everybody knows, or at least I'm trying to convince everybody that I'm like a technological gal, NFTs deep fake technology asks me about it i know about it so this is me adding on to that brand myth but <laughs> but i was really fascinated that he used deep fake technology to me to make art and to make social commentary specifically social commentary that would be um interesting to the black community i think that sometimes specifically now when people try to make political or emotional statements through art some i i, I feel the the very real presence of the white gaze that oh you're talking about black people to white people i felt like he was trying to and to me for me successfully attempted to create a dialogue um, in a provocative moment that was happening internally um, uh, within the Black community and have people hate it and have people think that he's just a a flaming hotep and have people think that he's a genius. And I kind of, and I just will always appreciate people who see technology and create um, art and conversation around it. Um, So I don't know if if anybody saw it, but he turns into Will Smith, Kanye West, 
Um, and then the grand finale is that he turns, that he turns into Jesse Smollett. <laughs> then he turns into the grand finale is that he turns into Nipsey Hussle. And the idea that I gathered from it was that, um, uh, kind of taking the most polarizing either because of death or because of just events that have happened, taking some of the most polarizing public black male figures and him kind of saying, oh, I'm all of these people too. It really reminded me, you know, I love, a, you know, I love a, um, a black woman poet, but it really reminded me of um, my Angelou's um, quote where she says, um, if a human has done it, it cannot be alien to me. So I thought it was interesting because Kendrick Lamar has this really, because he just, ha- he, to me, he's like almost like... <laughs> He's almost like hip hop's Adele. Like he like really like is loved in the community and 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 really great. And I thought it was really interesting for him to say like, no, I am in this special pedestal moment within the community and within like even like scholarly white intellectual uh, like like establishment. However, I still identify myself with with the most provocative of, of me, the, even with the quote-unquote worst of me. And I thought that was really interesting, no matter how I felt about those figures. And I thought that was a really interesting statement to make from a place of power, um, to, to, to flatten yourself and say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just like the Negro you hate, too. I'm just like the Negro who you're embarrassed of, too. I'm just like the Negro that you're mourning. So don't create me and make me into this exceptional token Negro because I am a literary genius via my rap. So I just thought that was like, I, I was like, I'm, I'm with it. I like love it. And um, I've been listening to the album. I don't know if y'all got to listen to the album. There's some great music on there. Obviously, there's some like music that's been starting conversations, including, um, I guess for me as like a black non-binary trans person like um the auntie diaries um song was super duper interesting to me and i it just, it just see and less interesting was what i heard but like just seeing what it sparked and seeing the conversations that other people were having with it i personally because i've been listening to hip-hop my whole life and i have really foul mouth uncles that I grew up around and cousins so I think I have like a decent like I just I'm like a like the words don't like I think you have the right to be offended by words but they just don't jar me and I really for me because it was centered around him trying his best to explain his 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 experience with trans people and his family and him trying to explain his um him maturing around the ideas around gender and sexuality and the fact that he arrived at a good at, at a place of, of further consciousness and saying like you know I was a kid when I was saying that word and now I'm grown and here are the things that kind of expanded my consciousness around the human experience that's not just me as a cishet person I really appreciated it and you know I am, you know, I just don't give white people any room, but when it comes to cishet black men or black men in general, like in just general, I just give a lot of room to. So I am that person who's probably annoying where I'm like, I just love that he did that. Like just with the Jay-Z, when he talked about his lesbian mother, I just grew up with Ghostface Killer. I just grew up with Scarface. I grew up with Biggie Smalls. I grew up listening to that kind of music. So the fact that I'm listening to one of the biggest hip hop artists ever say like, man, Trans people, are, trans people are cool. I got a few in my family, and this is my experience. I'm like, I would have never been. T- I was not 12 listening to Q-Tip, who was one of the more common in Q-Tip, who was one of the more conscious rappers. I would never even dare to dream that they would make a song like this. So I think part of me as a 31 year old gets excited about it because I remember even far 
not that far back as 21 that like I just would never think somebody in Kendrick Lamar's position would do that um yeah so that's my news and that's my ideas I want to see if y'all heard the album watched the music video what did y'all think let's argue you'll get no argument from me I love Kendrick Lamar I haven't listened to the album yet and I will but I also needed I was kind of waiting on it so I can savor it and like light some candles um, and other things and listen. Um, So I I can't, I can't wait to do that. But as you know, as I was just digging around just about this video in particular, um, I pulled up the lyrics, um, which are profound, obviously, because it's Kendrick. Um, And just this, you know, it just causes you to think, to just stop in your tracks. Like, what is what is the culture? What is Black culture? And is, is you know, in, has death become a part of our culture? Um, has violence become a part of our culture? Violence done onto us, I would say. Um, so I don't know. And I think also with, you know, the Will Smith and Jesse of it all, it's just kind of just just like controversy and you know sensationalization is like that part of our culture as well um and uh, while you bring up Maya Angelou like I wonder what Auntie Maya would say about Will Smith smacking Chris Rock not to bring that back up but I'm just thinking of like you know how 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 some of how we came up with some of our elders right and what was respectable and what was considered culture and what wasn't considered culture and what how you needed to behave um to respect the culture i don't know i guess that's just like the mindset it 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 is put me in is just kind of an examination of what we have let capitalism and social media likes do to black culture um, you know, I, so I did start to listen to it and I'll tell you, I felt like a uncle for a minute. I'm like, the first song I uh, listened to was the one where him and his, him and Taylor Page, what's this song called? Um, we Cry Together, I believe. And I think that was it. And I was like, it's just so many cuss words that I just like, have. I was like, the uncle, I was like, woo, I got to ease into this. I just forgot. <laughs> but it was like, I really did feel like an uncle. I'm like, can I, do they have, I couldn't find a not Like where version is the clean version? Literally. I was like, I, I, I want the kids by version. I'm not gonna lie. I really was like, it's so, I, I need to plug. It's so many customers I can't focus. Um, but I, but but like you, I was really um, both. I was really interested in Auntie Diaries and super interested in the conversation that it spawned that I saw online because it was all these like cishet black men who like they were like tampering their transphobia because they like Kendrick like. Kendrick saying it all of a sudden made it like okay to not be transphobic. Like I saw it happen in real time and was like, well, that is interesting. You know what I mean? Like, because Kendrick's analysis wasn't like profound. It wasn't like some deep, you know, like, but it was a different person saying it and lending to it. And I thought that was really interesting. And somebody on Twitter, I will not say her name so that people don't go to her Twitter page, but uh, one of the things that she sort of pointed out, and I'm not going to read her tweets, but she was sort of reflecting on the album. She was like, she was like, I'm sort of neutral about him in this moment like i don't i I don't hate him and you know i I think the art is interesting but she was like it does feel like straight black men feel unheard and feel like they need a 
a place to process things. And, you know, some of these albums feel like that sort of processing. And I, and I've been interested in that too, as somebody who's like, you know, like you, I grew up around a, a range of people and I spent my work around a range of, of black people. And, and there is something, it, it was so interesting to see the way that straight black men were willing to listen differently because Kendrick said it and not that Kendrick said anything new. Like there weren't new ideas about gender or identity that I heard or family or relationship for that matter. But he said it and like that was, it, I, I left after, after seeing it real time, seeing her tweets and then listening to the songs that I did listen to, it made me think about that space. Like where do you, where does everybody go to process and how do people process and what does that look like and how can we make that the most productive and you know how is that still art like all those questions came to mind i just don't understand when art like when people who have albums and make art or make anything like an like i just don't understand when that became like where the onus became to like say something revelatory like to me like kendrick lamar is like the i don't like i I don't i don't (laughs) like the 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 he's the everyday rapper that's the other word I was going to use was, like, I was like, I don't want to get wrapped up in that. But he's, like, the everyday man's rapper. And I think that's what really appeals to people. The fact that, like, sometimes when even when he was at his, like, biggest, he would have, like, undone cornrows. And he was talking about, you know, drinking with his uncles and growing up. And I'm like, I just, so, sometimes I think, I just wonder when we do have these artists, like, a a Kendrick Lamar do something or artists like Beyonce, like, like, I, I, like, I, like, I wonder, are we like not putting too much on them to be revelatory? And of course, because the same people who made homophobia transform and transphobia a need, you know, there's songs like when I think about Boom Bye Bye and like literally songs about homophobic violence, like, of, of, it, if you made it a rite of passage in order to be in this group that you need to be transphobic and homophobic, of course, somebody saying that's not cool anymore, that's all that needs to be done. Something new doesn't need to be done. It just needs to be showed of how it looks like and what it sounds like, you know? And I think that it just takes a person in Kendrick Lamar's position to show how it looks like. And that's gonna affect... The, his his constituency. I don't know why I keep on referring to him as a politician, but like like that's gonna reflect it. That's gonna that's gonna affect the people who really look up to him as oh wow, this is the person who's just like me, who's able to articulate and process what's going through my head and and the philosophies that I'm thinking. Like that's that's what it looks like. It looks like just saying it and just being an example to me. We didn't argue enough. But I but he is but he is revelatory though. I just I completely disagree. Like I feel like he's he 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 is the rule. He is the rule, not the not the not the standard. And I mean, it's gonna be all right is like the theme song of Black Lives Matter. I mean, we like when black people hear that song, it is like, oh, like it is the coming. So I just feel like he, and he knows that, right? And he plays to that. And I think it's in the things that he also doesn't do, right? He doesn't align himself with brands. He's not out here just, you know, willy nilly using his name and 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 influence to get into conversations. I think he he's kind of like Prince almost in that he appears with this genius that we're all that, you know, helps to change our consciousness. And then he goes and do, then he disappears, right? 
We see him at a Super Bowl. He's just like Prince. So I feel like that's that 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 is Kendrick. And I feel like he knows that. And I feel like for black artists, it is it is a part of our culture from my perspective that the music, if if that the best music and the best art has some type of component of social justice, equality, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I feel the same way about Tupac. And that's why they killed him. So Kendrick, hide. Just don't go nowhere. Don't go oh nowhere. God. Get out of here. <laughs> so what I will, what, what I, the only thing I'll push on, um, Miles, is, is that do you think that there's a responsibility that our artists have that I think is real in agreeing with, with DR? And the responsibility isn't that all your music is that, right? Because we need to, like, drop it low, back it up, do the thing. Like, all that music is as important as any other music. But I will say, especially in, you know, you and I, we've talked a lot about celebrity and like the role of celebrity or the function of celebrity. It is really something to like think about just the the abject poverty, the like attack on rights and all this stuff that is happening day to day. And to have artists just like not acknowledge it or like not, it just feels really weird. And And I don't know if we call that a responsibility or if that's what it means to just be like present or aware. But it's like the the refusal to acknowledge is that feels off, that feels wrong, that doesn't feel like being in community, especially with the big platform. Yeah, yeah, I agree with everything that both of you all said. So maybe I miscommunicated what I was saying. I guess I was saying what I was trying to say was I think that if you are an artist, you know, and I've I've been really big on you know. We, we are living in a generation where we have very sustainable, long-lasting novelty acts. That's just the, the fact of it. So we don't have one-hit wonders. We, we have 100, 100. You could, you could be one person who's doing a whole bunch of one-hits and live your whole life on it. And it's great. Live your life. Get, get, get your blessings however they come to you. And if, if it's with the 808 and back it up and don't get, I love it. But we have to recognize that those people aren't necessarily artists. And I was think, what I was saying is... Some, I was seeing a push of like aware Kendrick's intelligence or political or spiritual awareness was at. And I think that like, and basically the, 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 the memes critique is the fact that like, oh, this is all you're thinking about, or this is where you arrived at or whatever. So, so, so Kendrick is engaging with politics, is engaging with blackness, is engaging with intimacy and queerness. And he didn't arrive at an advanced enough place for some people or a revelatory enough space for other people. And I was like, well, I think it's just, he's just reflecting what's going on the inside. And sometimes it's simple, you know, and sometimes it will be sophisticated. And I think that the appeal of Kendrick Lamar was the fact that and no matter what because just like I think there's a I think the appeal of like a Beyonce at the core of it is that she is that pretty popular girl that everybody likes and th- and she was able to superstar that and I think the appeal of um, Kendrick Lamar is that he's that everyday man mm-hmm. who's got superstardom and he does things that remind him of that everyday man and I think sometimes that everyday man has everyday thoughts and everyday thoughts aren't <laughs> aren't that interesting all the time and so and you know and sometimes you he you might arrive and be like you know what 
trans folks ain't that bad. I I I had a I had a uncle who used to be my auntie, and they were pretty cool too. And it's not sophisticated, and it's and it's and it's offensive, but it's where they're at, and I think that that needs to be respected too, you know, or or I appreciate it too. And I wonder if we're not pushed to a state of genius, and I have the cure for racial cancer. And and, and, and and homophobic and transphobic cancer. Like I wonder if we're not pushed to certain types of things just because we're we're made into those kind of like right. moral icons yeah. often. All right, you're right. Not not us all coming back to peace <laughs> for all podcasts. I'm trying to choose chaos. But uh, <laughs> sometimes the ancestors are giving us all the same answer. <laughs> that part. Amen. That part. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both Black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Now, DR, with your news, I'm not sure how I feel about the opera, so please help us lead us into the opera. My news is the New York Times review of the Detroit opera. It's the now Detroit opera for 50 years. It was the Michigan opera, even though it's in downtown Detroit. I don't know. That's I, I don't know the reasoning behind that, but it is now the Detroit opera. And with that, they um, the the opera was the autobiography of Malcolm X, and they just call it X. It was my very first time going to an opera. Full transparency, Devon Tynes, who plays Malcolm X, is a friend, and he's just so talented, I can't even stand it. And so I feel like my opera experience is completely different from any traditional opera experience. Number one, I was in Detroit. Number two, I was seeing Malcolm X. Number three, Black people came out to see this opera. I don't know if they thought a choir was going to come out. I don't know what we were thinking in Detroit, but it was aunties galore up in there. I felt like felt like I was going to see shoot Jeffrey Osborne or something. So it was it was just it was it's just like delightful. Everyone was dressed up. Everyone was in such a delightful excited mood to see this all black cast in this opera recounting the life of Malcolm X and from beginning to end of the three hours and five minutes, that's another thing for black people to know y'all, the opera's real, 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 real long. Um, But there are cocktails, so it's fine. Um, It 
it it goes in the New York Times article d- does this, but it also does it in a way that is educating. I don't know the New York Times audience about Malcolm X and his life, but we all know it. Um, but it goes through from when he was a child and his father was murdered by the KKK to his mom um, having a mental breakdown, to him being in foster care, from him going to print, like all all of it, they were able to do through song and it was it just was it's it was profound i think you know artistry comes in so many forms and i think for black people opera has been one of those things that i guess it i mean i but i also think of like mahalia jackson so i feel like it it wasn't that it wasn't it wasn't that we weren't able to do it or not interested in doing it was more we didn't have the opportunity to do it and i think that we're going to see opera being like everything else we've taken over, like tennis and golf. So, you know, white opera singers, y'all better get it together because we're coming. Um, but it was it was wonderful. So I encourage everybody to go to Detroit and see it. It's also going to Seattle. It's going to Omaha. Simone Sanders' mama was there. Evidently, she's into opera. Um, it's going to Omaha. It's going to, and it's coming to New York, to the Met. So... Yeah, we'll we'll be able to to chat about it once we all go together. I want to go. Um, wait. So I love. So I like. So one of my first like New York experiences, I went to um, an opera in in Harlem. Actually, it was an all black opera, and they did like Negro spirituals, and it was really cool. And since then, I've had the opportunity to go to like many different operas that were like black focused and um and just like just regular operas. I've really loved the drama of it, and just as somebody who's exploring um the the meaning of music and film and stuff like that, operas have like really helped me do th- things. And one of the things that I found out too. Is that like? Did you know that like? Well, somebody who writes an opera, they're called um a libretto. Um, I know that because I'm uh cultured. Um, <laughs> but did you? But did you know that Toni Morrison wrote an opera called Margaret Garner, um, which is about which is about the real which is about the real story of um uh you so beloved was based off of the real story of uh Margaret Garner, um uh, who uh was tried for murder for killing her own children during child slavery. So I just thought that was really interesting. So I've actually, it was just interesting that you put this in because this is actually something that has been like in my consciousness of like, how do I, well, I don't want to tell all my business what I'm working on, but how do, but, but, the, but that's the synergy of story and stuff like that. And I've always, right. and I've always thought to myself because traditionally in opera, um, operas are tragedies. That's just, that's just the, that's just the traditional narrative arc of opera. So to me, I'm thinking, well, can't nobody sing like us. And when we talk about American tragedies, it just makes a rhythm of sense <laughs> that we would own, um, that we will own that genre. And I think that now that access is here and now that a lot more people in the flat, and, and I would just have to think that the flattening of both education and of like this internet and access, because I know there's certain operas that I saw on, during the pandemic on YouTube, you know, or like I saw because I was able to like pay, pay the $15 to see what a university was doing or whatever. And now that people have more access to it, people are able to imagine things. But I'm very excited about it because I think there's, excuse me, I think because of Black uh, black folks' uh, history in America and the, and the, the traditional um, opera arc, it just makes, it actually makes a lot of sense together. And I think that's a really 
interesting way to honor some of the darker moments in our history and like in 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 a way that to me still feels you can still digest it because I think I think that I'm I, I don't think that I'm really interesting in the in the realism filmmaking anymore of stuff but this genre has made me interested in like oh I would watch a Fred Hampton opera I would watch a Margaret Garner opera I would actually watch this 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 elevated um, maybe dramatic, but di- but distance theatrical moment. And I also think the last thing I'll say about it is like I think film, and especially how we consume film now, we could we um we consume film alone. And I think that when you make things on Netflix and it's traumatic and you're consuming it alone, that is a different type of thing. And I think there's something different when you could consume it with community and you're dressing up. And I think there's a there's a barrier of care and aftercare available when you're consuming these tragic moments with community. And I and I, and I think if we should still review our tragedies and, and make into stories, I think more people should think about doing them in this way. Because, A, I just think it's cool. But also, I think that it's a more res- maybe social responsibility to, um, to engage some of our more tragic moments as Black folks. Yeah, I'd say, uh, so maybe I need to go see an opera. As you, as you were talking, as you both were talking about it, I'm like, mm, I don't think I've really seen the opera. I've been to a lot of musicals, a lot of plays no opera so like a three-hour opera i'm like i don't even know that literally i'm like it goes really fast there's a 20 minute intermission in the middle so it goes it goes it goes fast and the other thing i will say miles that you just just i don't you just i just see imagery in my mind when you're speaking but it's just taking me back to yesterday when because it was this opera was dance it was song. It just was so multidimensional, and just to see black people moving and arting in that way was so beautiful. So at some points, like I really like the words weren't even coming into my mind. It just was like the power of the of the performers. Um, so one, yes, like I think this is. Yeah, I just I love it as 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 a form of of communicating what what's happened to us as a people. And the last thing I'll say is that the conductor was also black, Kazim Abdullah. And y'all, he had his arms up that whole time. I didn't even know that's what they do. I mean, dang, the whole the whole time. So I don't know. I think I think this. Um, I think there's a movement happening in opera, and I know that um, a lot of Devon's work, and check him out, Devon Tynes, if y'all aren't familiar with him, but I think it's going to be a movement and create more accessibility in opera, and with folks like Miles, obviously, who already really, really get it, I'm really, really excited to see where all this goes. Boom. Yeah, I, I'm interested in the in the different ways that we are telling stories these days. I've I've seen the the musicals and plays, and I've been like, you know what, that is a very interesting way to tell this story. And something you said earlier, Miles, has still stuck with me that like uh, the danger of the evil white supremacy that we were talking about today is is the attack on the ordinary. And what I love about some of the the art forms is that like it shows us a slice of the ordinary in the magic, you know. And you're like, that's actually really beautiful, and. And I don't think we talk about that enough. So, yeah. and just and just to add, I, I feel like we're having a really good conversation. Where I just love talking to you all. But um, to add to what you um, were saying too, I think that there's so. I used to be part of the train of I don't want to see any more like black tragedies or, or like anything else 
where somebody's sad and black. I don't want to see no, like, why did you kill my son? Like, I don't want to see any of that, like, anymore. I'm done. Um, and I still, part of me still really feels that way, but it was opera and, like, my kind of, like, engagement with, with, um, with that genre that made me feel like, because the drama is so, because it's mellow, it's, it's, it, it, is almost melodramatic and fanciful. Mm -hmm. There's deep wisdom in tragedy and personal tragedies that we've experienced and also in our public tragedies. And I think that opera is such an interesting way to still express the wisdom in those tragedies without re-traumatizing people. You know? And so, and and, and again, I think there's going to be so many, I predict that there's going to be so many um, different limbs to that tree. Of like, okay, this is the 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 the, the, the fanciful melodramatic art representation of a tragedy. I think it's gonna have a. To- I think it's gonna have a lot of different lives, and I think that this is probably like you know X. I want to see it. Can I get tickets? Um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, is it gonna happen again? Absolutely. I'm like, it's gonna yeah. happen again. But um, but yeah, I think that. There's going to be a lot of different, I think a lot of different people, I think a lot of different people and with different mediums are going to be thinking about like, okay, how do I express the wisdom in a tragedy without re-traumatizing people? And I think that's the challenge of like where art is right now. And I'm, and I think this is like leading the punch. It just makes me excited. I could have a whole opera. Um, Come on, DeRay, what sad news do you have for us today? (laughs) So my my news is I, I had there was something I knew very little about and it was about the baby formula shortage. So there is a baby formula shortage. I'd seen it on the timeline a little bit, but it was still such a fringe topic. So I did a little digging and then that's when I put it in the chat so we could talk about it. But nationwide, 40% of formula is out of stock. And the hard part is that it is some of the specialty formulas are the ones that are hardest to find. And trying to figure out why there is, like, what's going on, why is there such a shortage, is that there were three causes. The first was bacteria, the second was a virus, and the third was trade policy. And I thought it was just so interesting. So there were at least two infants that died from a rare infection. The FDA investigated one of the few, it's like three or four major producers of uh, baby formula, and discovered that there was this bacteria. And as a result, the FDA recalled several brands of the formula and parents were advised not to buy. And it was such a big recall that like it really was, it really just happened in the confluence of all these things. The second, as you know, is the pandemic. And that's like the other thing. So people are like hoarding resources or or buying in ways that they probably otherwise wouldn't buy. Um, And there's research to say that there's a really dramatic decrease in breastfeeding that happened over the pandemic that led to a corollary increase in a demand for formula that was like coinciding with this decrease or with the recall happening. Um, and then the third is the one that I didn't know at all is that FDA regulation of the formula is really tight. And it's so tight um, that buying formula out of Europe is illegal because of technicalities. And like it, it almost supports a monopoly style system on the producers of of baby formula. And like, I didn't know that. I was like, that is really wild. And if you can import it from other places, the tax on federal imports of baby formula can be, can be as high as 17% or even higher. Um, And I, and I say all this to say that like one of the, so why, why am I bringing it here is as you can imagine who is disproportionately hit by 
things like this. It's poor people, women of color, like uh, who are inevitably hit by these people who don't have access to as, as great access to, to resources. Um, and there were some ignorant comments that I saw online that were like, well, baby formula hasn't always existed. What did people do before baby formula? And it was like, it was, it was so wild to see people confront for the first time that like this country forced black women, black new black mothers to, to breastfeed white babies instead of their own precisely because of this issue about how do you feed babies that there are no more important issues and how do we take care of kids? How do we actually just feed kids? And so like, there were so many things that came to mind. One was about like the racist history of this country that again, is rooted in evil, not just unkind, not just bad words, but like evil actions. And the second is, um, what is the government's responsibility to make sure that the basic necessities are taken care of? So Biden did release a statement saying that they're going to work on it and deal with the formula shortage. But as you can imagine, remember when masks first came out and it was like you could buy masks, but only on eBay for $200 and you can only get two of them then. It's like that is what's happening with baby formula and especially the specialty formulas that that kids need. And it really just, I don't know, I brought it here because I was like, this is something that I didn't even know about. Okay. So the two the, the two things that really um got to me is that you would think that this would be like no you wouldn't think this this is a total like sarcasm radio right now but this should be people who are upset about Roe versus Wade and like it or uh, people who are like trying to um overturn that this should be like their topic like babies like life this should be a topic but I've always thought it was really interesting that there's like been like a democratization of who gets to make skincare products. And now there's been more and more people who've been able to make skincare products for somebody who with my skin tone, who, lo- who, who looks like me. And there's been such a variety of people who are able to make things. Right. And in my head, and you kind of talked about how there's a monopoly. I'm like, is there any way we could push on who has the right to do that? Because I'm like, we, we, there, there should be more people who are able to enter this market and making baby formula and making things that are like, even like more organic and, and more, and, 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 and maybe more aligned or or a specialty for a child with this type of um, digestive problem or whatever. There should be more people who are able to get their hands on it. And I wonder if this is not like an opportunity to push on those regulations and see if those regulations are not just to uh, enforce uh, capitalist rule or in, in, in kind of like justify some things that like actually can be can be like tweaked so more people can be in on um, that market because it was kind of when I was thinking about it, I'm like yeah there's it just in my head I'm like there's just I just see it in my head a little black baby on some formula and somebody in Brooklyn should be able to be able to do that somebody who lives in who's who, like that should just be an open market for us to be able to participate in and and this this story made me realize, like, hmm, I don't see that, you know, and uh, and I think that we do need a, a a baby care revolution in the same way. To me, that the skincare industry has gotten like a revolution, but I think that first probably comes with those um, regulations being pushed and, and questioned. All of that, and what comes up for me for this is also diapers. So. I don't know if y'all know this, but diapers aren't covered by WIC or SNAP. No, they're not. There is, their diapers are also taxed as a luxury good. So 
taxes in some states, sales tax in some states on diapers can be one and a half percent to seven percent. So, and I know this just because um, my friend Kelly Sawyer runs Baby to Baby and they provide diapers to people who need them. But I think the there there are so many things <laughs> that um, just this that that we're missing like so many pieces of these of these stories that we don't know so many pieces of policy that we don't know but all of these things are i mean to both of y'all's points i mean they disproportionately impact women of course but but also like families like i think it's i think it's the other thing it's like thinking about these we think about these issues in such a myopic way and i think part of it is like we need to have honest conversations around what are our values? How are we ensuring that babies aren't dying when they're born black? How are we ensuring that babies can can eat? I just I think some of these things like when you break them down to the most basic level, it's just like what like what what kind of country is is this? We couldn't get no doctor. The babies don't got no food, child. We, <laughs> right, right, right. And that people are. And that people are celebrating. Or diapers. Like, well, the baby ain't got no diapers, no formula. Yeah, yeah. It's too I, expensive to live in these cities. We ain't got no housing. I mean, it's given. It's given. It's it's given America's uh, worst hits, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I I just really wonder. Do but do you know the do you know the answer to that, Dorey, by any chance, or like have any ideas around that, like do. I, I just I just think that black people have really, you know, I I, lo- I love entrepreneur annoying people like I I love I love those group of entrepreneurial black people who 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 will make a business out of something and I'm like out of anything but I'm well just like wondering like why is that market not been like right in, invade like it like invaded because that just seems yeah. like something that we will want to own you know. I, I think that, you know, in the research that I did, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can find an expert to bring on the pod to do an interview with, is that it just has been such a heavily regulated market for so long. And there, as you know, you know. And they have lobbies. Uh, they have big lobbies. They have lobbies. And yeah. what I didn't realize, and I learned this, and I was like, this makes total sense, is that most women will use the formula that the doctor gives them in the hospital, which makes total sense, Right. So when the doctor, when you when you have a baby, you leave with infamil, when you leave with whatever, you just use that because the doctor gave it to you. That makes, t- so like, even if you make a new one, like how do you make sure the doctors get, like there's that whole industry that sells to hospitals. So they're like the exclusive, you're like, this is, we really have made this a monopoly. That's not about kids and families making sure they have an abundance of food whenever they need it, but it's about something else. It's about profit. So I'm hopeful that out of this moment, not only do we fix this this crisis right now, but that there is some deep systemic reform. And we didn't even talk about the Supreme Court leak and, and everything that's happening with that. But uh, but the the old men making decisions about things that are about families and women is just gross. And I cannot wait till uh, until we get a different configuration of people in power. I'm super excited to share the story of 89-year-old Emily Meggett, the keeper of centuries-old culinary traditions in the Carolinas, who is considered by many to be the most important 
Gullah Geechee Cook Alive? Some of you are asking yourself, what in the world is Gullah Geechee? It's a good question because it's likely something that you should have learned in school, but you probably didn't. Gullah Geechee is the language and culture of the descendants of enslaved West Africans who lived and worked in a string of coastal communities from North Carolina to Florida. They were able to preserve many African traditions and create new ones here in America, including a Creole language that is still spoken in parts of South Carolina today. In fact, the Sea Islands of South Carolina are one of the best places to explore Gullah Geechee culture and, of course, where Mrs. Meggett was born and learned to cook. Emily Meggett has been feeding people in South Carolina's low country for more than 78 years, and she has never used a cookbook. She has over 150 recipes in her head, but this year she published her own cookbook, Gullah Geechee Home Cooking, Recipes from the Matriarch of Adisto Island. The book has 123 recipes and focuses on the trinity of the Gullah Geechee table, rice, seafood, and fresh local vegetables. Many of the dishes come from our African roots, like chicken perlu, okra soup, and other one-pot meals. Some come from making the best out of what you had to feed a family with 11 children, over 50 grand and great-grandchildren, and others in the community who just might need something to eat. And some recipes come from the 45 years she spent cooking for the Dodge family and other wealthy white families who kept homes on Adisto Island. The book was prompted by a white woman who Mrs. Meggett worked for who encouraged her to write her own cookbook. But the article points out the long and complicated history of cookbooks featuring recipes created or perfected by Black women, but captured on paper by white women. The difference here, according to Tony Tipton Martin, an expert on Black American cooks, is that her techniques, her intimacy with that pot, has been recorded in her own words and is now her intellectual property. Amen, sis. I brought Emily Meggett's story to the podcast for a few reasons. First, We need to know our history and our culture, and food is such an important part of African-American culture that I wanted people to know about this book so that they can touch and feel the low country through Mrs. Meggett's dishes. Her story was also a comfort to me and a reminder of our resilience, our perseverance, and our joy as African-Americans during a week that reminds us once again in the United States that Black lives still don't matter. Savora Magazine said it best. The role Meggett plays in her community is one countless Black women share, but are rarely celebrated for. Her story and recipe should easily be heralded alongside those of some of history's greatest culinarians like Edna Lewis, Leah Chase, and Julia Child. Meggett's food isn't fussy. It invites home cooks from all backgrounds into the kitchen to learn how to cook fresh and flavorful dishes without the stress of perfection we often see presented on social media and television. Her love for food and her community is an essential ingredient that makes her cooking and Gullah food as a whole so special. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed at home in your Keurig coffee maker with Dunkin' Cold K-Cup Pods. Just brew it hot over ice and enjoy flavor that's crafted to serve cold. The home with Dunkin' is where you want to be. Hey, hey. 
election season is coming up fast. And you know, local elections matter a ton. Your city council people, your governor, your elected state official represents your district has a lot more influence in your day-to-day life than almost anybody else. And I love Austin, Texas. Keep Austin weird, as they say. We've been close to the activists in Austin for a long time, but recently I had a chance to sit down with Joe Spearman to, to chat about his candidacy for Austin City Council District 9. I learned a ton. It was a fun combo. Who knew that he used to have a sneaker store? But more importantly, I want you to hear about Joe and think about how you can help his campaign and learn about people who are taking the next step and running for office. Here we go. Joe, 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 thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm excited. We don't really get a lot of candidates on the pod anymore because they all say the same thing. Uh, but one of the things that I was excited about with you is that I've I've seen you, uh, I've seen you on the campaign trail. I've seen some things you talk about. I'm like, wow, this feels fresh and different and new. But before we talk about your run for Austin City Council, can you tell us what was your work before the run? Like, how did you even start to think about yourself as a professional in the world? And then we'll get to the run. Definitely. Um, I mean, for me, I definitely think of myself as an entrepreneur and mostly as a as an entrepreneur focused on community. Um, for the last, let's see, 13 years, I've been in Austin building companies. I'm on my fourth company right now, and, and all of them have been really centered around community. The first one was um, focused on social media, helping uh, companies understand, you know, things like Twitter and blogging and whatnot. Um and then the second was a sneaker boutique and really one, that was one of the only black owned businesses in downtown Austin at the time, um, building community around people who were interested in sneakers, but also people who just were interested in bringing more culture and, and perspective and diversity to, to Austin, especially downtown. Um, and then I created and ran the first ever fashion part of South by Southwest festival, which was, I mean, I think first year event, we had 15,000 attendees, second year over 20,000. So very, very kind of big audience, community gathering type events. Um, and then the, for the last nine years, I've been running a startup called Localer, which has built a community of locals in over 200 cities around the world. So even, even you know, I tell people sometimes I'm, I'm really bad at, at being a capitalist because for me, it, even as an entrepreneur, it doesn't make sense for me to do a business that isn't focused on community. I didn't know you were a sneakerhead. Are you a sneakerhead or did you just own a sneaker store? I, I think I, I've retired from being a sneakerhead. There was, there was a point in my life when I definitely had, you know, 100 plus pair of sneakers and knew everything, read all the blogs, did all the stuff. But over the years, when I started local or actually when I, I was traveling the first, you know, 2013 through 2019 before COVID, I was traveling 100, 150 days a year. And so I just, I got to the point where I needed to get more minimalist here in Austin. And so I consolidated, I sold a bunch of sneakers um, and I kind of just fell off. Um, so now I'm, my, my oldest brother, Karan, who also uh, lives here in Austin, he, he's the big sneaker head in the family now. He's probably still holding 100 to 200 pair of sneakers. Oh my God, I love it. What was it like being a business owner in Austin in the past, like having a, a brick and mortar store and how does that, how do you think the city sort of is for business owners today, especially in a COVID landscape? What does that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I would say, I mean, my where my sneaker shop was located was actually at City Hall, believe it or not. So in Austin City Hall is right downtown. And um, 
there are two retail centers like kind of downstairs. So one of them was a coffee shop called Austin Java, and then one was my sneaker boutique, Sneak Attack. Sneak Attack. Yeah. Sneak Attack is a good name. Sneak yeah, Attack is. is a good name. You get ten points for Sneak Attack. That's good. I'm gonna okay, bring. Sorry. I'm gonna. I'm gonna bring it back one day. Um, yeah. So I. So I had this great location downtown Austin, and what what I loved about it was that. I would see a lot of people who were new to Austin. Either they had just moved to Austin, they were down there walking around, or they were visiting. I, one of my good friends, Marianne, who's a, a young black executive at Facebook, or Meta now, um, he, he had a job interview. And after his job interview in downtown Austin, he was randomly walking around and walked into my shop. And we've been friends since. That was 10, 12 years ago. And so I, I, I liked it as a place to, to interact with people, meet people, in a lot of ways, like that's where I kind of got started with this idea of recommending locally owned businesses to other people, people visiting Austin. Um, and, but what I would say is owning a business in Austin is not easy for, for two reasons. One, um, there, this city has just a very troubled racial history. And in downtown Austin, especially, you see areas where downtown Austin, West Austin, you see where they used to be predominantly black areas, or even there, there was a, there was a certain amount of, of black owned businesses or black residents in certain areas like near my neighborhood or Clarksville or downtown Austin. And, and now you go downtown and there really aren't black owned businesses. There are very few Hispanic Latino owned businesses as well. Um, so that, so that part's challenging because the both the, the the rents and how high they are downtown the affordability issues in this city but but also because um this city has a very troubled racial history that even exists here 100 years after um you know the Jim Crow era so or 100 years after the 1928 city plan in Austin that that really kind of codified the Jim Crow era in Austin so i think that's one of the challenges and i think the other challenge is that um, we are in a city where the the city government itself is not well equipped to um, do things like expediting permitting processes and whatnot. So, for example, if you're trying to open, open a restaurant in downtown Austin, you may encounter something like a year and a half to two years before you get the right permits to be able to open. And so if you are, you know, if you have a good idea now, if you don't have the money to kind of tie yourself over for two years or in some cases pay for a lobbyist to lobby the city to get the right permits to open, then, then you're, you know, you're already in a bad spot. So we've really done some things on, uh, as a city that are not favorable to, um, to small business owners, especially people of color who may not have access to the kind of capital you would need to bankroll a lobbyist and things for a year and a half or two to get open. So, that takes us to the city council. Mm. Why the city council? You've been a successful businessman. You've been an entrepreneur. You clearly have a commitment to the city, but you've also traveled across the world and across uh, across the country. Why the council? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. A lot of people have asked me this. A lot of people think I'm crazy, actually. They're like, kind of, why are you doing this? Um, I mean, for me, it's very much like what I've learned as an entrepreneur. It the The why is really important, but... Another thing that's just as important as the why is the why now. And for me, the why is, yes, I care about this city. Um, I've, I've come of age in the city. I mean, I moved to Austin. I grew up about an hour north of Austin, youngest of three boys, single mom, free school lunch, food stamps, all that stuff. And 
And when I came to Austin for the first time in 2001, it was to go to college. And I'm, I'm the first person in my family to graduate from college, graduated from University of Texas. And, and then even after a couple of years working in D.C. after college, I moved back because I just, I just loved the city. And I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall that Austin was going to become the kind of city that it is today, which is this kind of growing metropolitan area people being attracted from all over the country. And, and I saw that. So I, my kind of my first investment, honestly, wasn't even in a business. It was in this city and just investing my, my kind of adulthood and career in the city. So that's part of my why. But the why now is more important to me, which is, you know, we, what we've seen over the last two years with the pandemic, um, with obviously the, 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 the murders of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, um, and then here in Texas, here in Austin, with the winter storm and the power grid failure uh, because of the state in, in part last, last February, is we've just seen one institutional failure after another. And, and I realize a lot of those institutional failures are, are stemming from a lack of the, the right um, intersectional and nuanced perspective in positions of leadership in city and state and federal government. And so for me, as an entrepreneur, like, I've had to think intersectionally about so many things for so long, um, about how something works for community, but it also works for business, how something works for Austin, but it also works around the world and all these different ways I've had to think. And, and I, I feel like Austin's at a really unique inflection point where it, it kind of could go one of two directions. It could, it could become a city that you have to be uh, of someone of means, of high means, um, a high-earning family or come from money, to afford to live in this city or, and, or it can go down the path of trying to become, um, or maintain a certain degree of affordability and creative culture while also becoming more inclusive and, and taking the lessons of the last two years and putting those into policy. So for me, I feel like I have a certain skill set, experience set, both lived and professional that just really make this, this time right now, a, a time where people like me need to be running for office, need to be taking up that space. Um, so, so that's a big part, but the, the, the one thing that really got me to say, yes, I'm going to do this was, um, actually when I first moved to Austin, actually before I moved to Austin for college, I would come here for high school and cross country, uh, track and cross country meets. And I fell in love with this city because of the, the outdoor culture, the running fitness culture. And so I've been a distance runner for years. And last year when, um, when I learned of Ahmaud Arbery uh, being killed, I, my wife and I went for a run. And I remember we, we live in a pretty affluent area in Austin. And I remember running um, about half a mile from our house and I just broke down crying. And I, I literally, for the first time in my life, and I've grown up in the deep South, like between South Carolina and Texas and been running alone in streets and had people yelling at me and all, all these things. But that, that was the first day ever in my life that I did not feel physically safe running. And in, even in a city that I love, that I, you know, is fairly safe. And so I, I just felt like I needed to channel that, that feeling of fear. And then what fear led to was anger and channel that into something that was productive for not just me, but for this city and running for city council felt like that thing. What have you heard from people? You know, you've, you've been, in community talking about the race, people have reached out to you, you know, people know you're running in town. What do you hear from people? What do they, what do they say? What, what are the issues that are top of mind for people? You know, I think that when you read the news, people say things like it is, um, 
you know, crime or mm-hmm. I don't know, education or do, do you find that that is, is that true? Like, what do you, what do you hear? You know, it's so different as you know, when you like go knock on people's doors, mm-hmm. it's very different than sometimes what the, what the, what the polls say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's interesting because before I was, before I announced I was running, I was kind of slowly talking to some friends about thinking about it and, you know, everyone's like, oh, that's great. That's great. And then once I announced, then the conversation changed a little bit into kind of like, I think some people were like, oh, that's great. Now they're, they're fully behind me. And then some were like, okay, well, now I'm going to wait to see, you know, what are you going to be talking about? What issues do you care about? Things like that. And what, what I'm seeing and hearing here in Austin is the main issues, the, the, the number one issue that everyone is talking about, um, some form or another, is affordability. And that the reason why that's such an issue is because Austin for for decades it's just it's been a college town. It was the place where people moved from other parts of Texas, like maybe Houston or Dallas, and they sent their kids here for college and it was an affordable town. And and honestly there weren't that many jobs here up until the last 20, 25 years. So to most people they would come here for college, have a few kind of kind of kind of sleepy uh, relaxed, chill college years, maybe even post-college years, and then eventually have to move somewhere else for, for, for gainful employment. And then over the last two decades, especially what's happened is the jobs have really moved into Austin or been created in Austin even more so from, from entrepreneurs. And so people graduate, and whether that's high school or college, and they can stay here. They can, they can see themselves living here for years, decades. And so while that's good, at the same time what's happened is the kind of jobs that have moved here, especially in the last five to 10 years, have been in the tech industry, which lends itself toward higher wages. But, you know, also tech, I, as someone who's been in the tech industry, it's not at all a, a very inclusive and equitable industry. So even though people are, the people who are in the industry are making more money, the people who are excluded from the industry are being left behind. And so what we're seeing in Austin is, we're seeing uh, growing issues around lack of housing, lack, lack of affordability, a lot of uh, displacement of, of black and brown people. Um, and so those are, those are the real pressing issues. And then, you know, they tend to have more high profile uh, expressions of those issues. Like homelessness has been one of the primary issues in Austin the last couple of years, especially. Um, but to me, homelessness is just one of the tenets of a larger issue that the city in this region has around affordability. Um, so that's, that's definitely one of them. Um, public safety is definitely one of them as well. I mean, police accountability, Austin being, being this great, you know, cool, creative city that it is, it, we have a lot of troubled history around racism, around police, uh, profiling around brutality. Um, in the last few months alone, the city of Austin has paid, um, over 12, $13 million in settlements as a result of, uh, of, of actions of sworn officers during the protest uh, after the, the, the murders of George Floyd. Um, so Justin Howell, Anthony Evans, Brad uh, Ayala, they, they, them and their families received settlements from the city of Austin to the tune of $8 million, $2 million, almost $3 million. Um, and that's even after um, a couple of uh, police-led shootings and, 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 and deaths of uh, Mike Ramos, um, David Joseph, uh, David Joseph's family received three and that three, almost three and a half million dollars from the city. So we also have a city that as it's growing, um, as it has this narrative around how many people are moving here, jobs moving here, et cetera, 
We also have a lot of issues around public safety and, and the trust and the relationship that the community has with our, our, our sworn officers and our de- police department. So these, these are the kind of things that you need very intersectional, nuanced thinkers and, and problem solvers to, to try to address because it's not going to be something that you can just address in, uh, you know, one news article, one headline. So, um, you know, these are the types of things that either I'm hearing a lot about them or if I'm not hearing about them, it's because, um, you know, people, these are the types of issues that people allow to simmer underneath the, the things that they're, they're paying attention to instead. Boom. And, and, and like, how, how has running been from you? You know, being a candidate is literally like, you think you know what it is and then you do it and it's like a whole different <laughs> world. How's that been? Like, what has been surprising to you? Do you spend more time fundraising than you thought? Do you, it's like the same question over and over. You know, I loved knocking doors more than I loved the, the random candidate forms we had, mm-hmm. not because I didn't like the candidate forms, but the only people who came to candidate forms were people who had essentially already made up their minds. Mm-hmm. But door knocking was like really cool. So I'd love to know, like, what has the process been like for you? Yeah. So for me, I have been trying to run a very grassroots, non-traditional campaign. Um, and I, I made that decision because what I've realized is that while there are a lot of candidates, there actually isn't that much talent for campaign staff, at least high-level experience talent. And so what, what that means is that in, uh, in Austin is a city where you'll have, you know, you'll have 10 city council members and you'll have the same campaign manager running like four of their campaigns. And so there's, a, there's kind of a, a playbook that, they're, they're, that you're supposed to use. And I, for me, and wanting to make authenticity the center of my campaign. I just didn't want to opt into someone else's playbook. And so I decided very early on that one of my goals with this campaign was to be myself as long as possible. And I'm really proud that I've, I'm, you know, several months in since I announced and, it, and it's going really well. Um, I, I've met, I've, I made this goal of meeting at least 1500 people one-on-one and I've, I'm almost at 800 people. I'm meeting something like 30 people one-on-one every week. Um, to just learn about them, learn about the issues that they care about. Um, and then I'm also starting to do like larger events as well. Um, so I think the biggest surprise so far, honestly, has been that the most helpful people have been people who have lost their elections or they no lo- they're no longer in office. What I've actually learned is that some of the least helpful people are people who are in office because they are, they're, they're, I think they're more reticent to share helpful advice or to make those introductions. And they, they, they're kind of, you know, in, in, in lack of a better way to describe it, they're being more political. Um, whereas people who, you know, they ran and they lost, they're more willing to be open and honest about their experiences. And so I've been talking to a lot of, a lot of former candidates, a lot of um, people who served maybe four or five, six years ago. Um, and, and that's been really helpful. Um, and then also one of the things that I've enjoyed the most about this process is seeing like who, who really pays attention because it, it's really surprising because some people who I would think would pay close attention to what happens with city government don't. And then some people really surprise me with how much they do know, like, Whenever I meet someone randomly, I mean, my wife and I were at a, a gala a couple of nights ago and we were waiting outside at the, for like the, the lift line. And this woman was like, oh, wait, aren't you running for council? And I, we started talking to her and she ends up like knowing she's like, oh, yeah, I live at this part of town. And she knows exactly where the district lines are. 
you know, where she's in, she's in the district that I'm, I'm running in. And it, it really is, is interesting to meet people who are paying attention, who are engaged. And then it's also really interesting to meet people who maybe they traditionally haven't been included in those conversations. Like for, for me in this district that I'm running in, um, we have a lot of hospitality and, and restaurant workers. And so people who are, you know, they're working one or two jobs just to try to afford their rent here in Austin, and they're not typically sought after as a voter. Um, and so I've been spending a lot of time meeting people who work at coffee shops, work in restaurants, and get, engaging them in this process because re- the restaurant industry is far more inclusive and, and equitable and diverse in a lot of ways than something like the tech industry where you do have people who have means and can make those max donations and, and things like that. So that's what I've enjoyed. Boom. I've been to Austin a couple of times. Some the Austin activists are some mm-hmm. of my favorite activists yeah. in the sense that like they know the content well. They they've gotten results. I mean, Chaz, Suki, all of them, like mm-hmm. whole whole great crew. Um, people say keep Austin weird. What does that mean? What does what does keep Austin weird mean? <laughs> you know, it's funny because what people what what they don't say is what they what that really means is weirder than the rest of Texas. That's what they really mean. And because I I learned that more and more, I've been in this city almost two decades. And when you go, you go to, you know, Astro North Carolina or Portland, Oregon, or some of these other cities, you're going to see things that are equally weird. Um, And uh, uh, these cities did kind of maybe borrow some of the terminology. They, you know, keep this city weird and stuff, all that the cities that have copied Austin in that way. But Austin in the grand scheme of things, it's very much like our politics where people are like, oh, Austin's this blueberry in a tomato soup. It's, you know, it's the liberal oasis of, of, of Texas. And then you, when, but when you pay really close attention, you're like, actually, Austin's not that much more liberal than Dallas or Houston or San Antonio um, on, in a lot of issues, on a lot, in a lot of ways. It's the same thing with the weirdness. I think, I think that what, what people mean is Austin has always had this, for doing things its own way and, and embracing things that maybe couldn't happen in other parts of Texas. Uh, like Leslie, for example, there's a, there's, a, there's a man named Leslie who lived in Austin for, for decades, past years ago, and he would ride around on his bike in, a, in like a G-string. And so he was kind of like the, the official, almost like mascot or emblem of, of Austin's weirdness. And people would be like, oh, that's just Leslie. And while those things are what people think about when they say keep Austin weird, I think increasingly what people are thinking about is Austin having this penchant for supporting local for, you know, we, we don't need to have, uh, you know, a lot of chain restaurants here because we have our own like homegrown local restaurants. Um, We don't need necessarily need to support all these uh, national touring acts here as much as we can support our own locally grown musicians. So I think that's really what people are pointing to. And so it, that, that's also under threat right now. I mean, I think that issues around affordability, um, the displacement that's happening, it, it is attacking some of that weirdness and some of that ability of Austin to, to do, go its own way as opposed to kind of doing what we're seeing. And, you know, whether that's in, on the East Coast or the West Coast, um, there's a lot of people in Austin who have, there's a strong sentiment here of like, don't California like my Austin um, or, um, you know, don't turn this into San Francisco or LA. Um, and I think that's a sentiment that's 
leading to a lot of uh, contention, I think, because we are getting people moving here from bigger metro areas from the the coast. Um, But for me, a lot of why I'm running is because my, even as an entrepreneur, I've, I think I've done a good job of showing that there is a path where you can be focused on, on pursuing something and growing something and building something while also making sure that it works for people who are new to Austin and people who want to visit Austin, but also it works for people who've lived in Austin for years and decades and want to preserve like a lot of that culture. So I think keep Austin weird is it's a tagline more than anything. Um, but I, but I do think that it does speak to a city that is kind of at its, at its inflection point in terms of how are we going to kind of stick to our local roots while embracing some of the new and some of the change of the future. Boom. How can people get involved? Oh man. Um, even if you don't live in Austin, you can donate to my campaign. Um, my website is joa austincom and that's J-O-A-H uh, for austin.com. And in Austin, we do this thing here where it's intended to create more equity in who can run for office. And it, it get, goes about halfway because they, this city still allows people to self-fund their campaigns. For example, we have a Republican mayoral candidate who's donated $300,000 to her own campaign. So that's one of the problems with the campaign finance laws here. But one of the good things is the, the legal limit is $400 per person. So no one, can, no one individual can donate more than $400 per person to a city council candidate. Um, so whether you live in four hundred dollars, that's low. Yeah, it is. So, so you know, it's a, it's you really have to know a lot of people. You have to meet a lot of people. Um, and so, anyone, whether you live in Austin or not, you can support my campaign through a donation. Um, I my social handles are at Joa Spearman on everything: Instagram, Twitter, um, and I'm, I talk about Austin a lot. I write a lot. Um, I love meeting people who are new to Austin, especially because. I think newcomers, um, they bring political sentiments that I think are much needed in this city around issues like transit, um, affordable housing. You know, a lot of people move here from bigger cities like New York, L.A., San Francisco. And so they understand that the local government has to play an active role and create fostering an environment where people can, you know, get alternative means to work other than driving um, or using the highway. Um, affordable housing and, and housing affordability so that everyone everyone can't afford a single family home, but maybe some people need a duplex or a fourplex. Um, so I love meeting people, you know, when people introduce me to their friends who live in Austin or friends who are moving to Austin, um, I love meeting those people. So I'm, I'm all ears. It's, it's March. The, I mean, sorry, it's April and the election's not till November 8th. And so really what I'm doing with this time is taking time to meet people one-on-one or meet people in small group settings. Um, because obviously later on in the campaign, it'll be more forums and things like that. Like you mentioned. Boom. Two questions before you go. First question is, um, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten that you'll never forget or that's always stuck with you? Yeah. Piece of advice. I mean, man, I'm just going through the list, but what I would say is for, well, I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk about one that I've gotten for running for office, which is something that I I think I've had for my entrepreneurial career as well, which is do it a way that is going to make you proud. Even if the result isn't this big result, like when I started Localer, I, you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to build the next billion dollar tech startup that hasn't happened. But I've been successful because I've stuck to my vision and 
I haven't sac- I haven't sacrificed any of my values to do this. You, I remember you had an episode, um, uh, I think maybe a couple of weeks ago about sticking to your values. And I really enjoyed that because for me, I just, I realized that even if you're really successful, if you sacrifice your values, then it's always going to have like an asterisk on it in- internally, not, not for anyone else, but for yourself internally. So for me, um, ha- having people tell, you know, a few people who have kind of said, you know, Hey, no matter what happens, just like run the, run the campaign that you want to run. Um, that's been really meaningful to me because that's how I've tried to do business as well. Um, so that's a piece of advice that I would give to anyone. Just whatever you do, whatever you pursue, just make sure that you're, you're checking in on yourself and sticking to the values that are core to you. Boom. And what do you say to the people who feel like they've done all the things they voted, they emailed, they called, they testified and the world didn't change yet. What do you say to those people? Yeah. I mean, what I would say to those people is the best, you know, if you're not getting what you want, then you have to give more. And I know that people are like, what I'm giving, I'm voting, I'm donating, I'm paying attention, I'm doing all these things. And what I actually learned during the pandemic, especially, was that one of the ways that I could fight through some of the, 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 the tires, tiredness feeling or the apathy of, oh, these things aren't changing, they're not going the way that they should be going, was public service. So I, um, when they set up one of the largest vaccine sites here in the country in Austin, I spent eight weekends in 2021, helping 20, over 20,000 people get COVID vaccines. So it was my grandmother uh, had passed from COVID in January of 2021. And I just, I realized that there, were, there was a, almost a healing nature of spending time meeting literally thousands of people, helping them get vaccinated. Um, and it, it, that, was, that played a big role in me, just feeling a deep sense of connection to like this city and the people that I really want to serve. You know, like I'm not, I'm not trying to serve people who they're, they were paying their way to jump the line and all this stuff or flying somewhere to go get, like, I was, I was really focused on, okay, how can I help people who maybe they're, they, they, they are on the other side of the digital divide where they don't have access to, you know, to the high speed internet to check this site about get vaccine rollout or, you know, Hispanic grandmothers or black families who have been displaced and now they live 20 minutes further east of Austin than they used to live. Um, and so I was really just feeling a lot of energy and, and positive like momentum out of just feeling like I was being helpful in a way that didn't involve like, you know, voting and things like that. So I would say for the people who are already really involved civically, like find a cause, you know, find something that maybe doesn't even have to do with politics per se, but it feels, it makes you feel like you're connected in to the community you're giving back in that way. Boom. Well, we can see your friend of the pod and can't wait to have you on. Awesome. Thank you so much. I, 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 I mean, I, I listened to your show and I, you're so inter- intersectional. This, this show is so intersectional. And I think that's a lot of what the perspective that I want to bring to council because, you know, we we're in this very polarized time. Everything is very binary. And the reality is that the issues are just too big um, to, to be binary. We can't afford to be binary. What we need to do is be problem oriented and problem and solution oriented. And so that's a lot of what I want to bring to the table. Awesome. Well, I'll see you later. I'll see you soon, actually. Yes, I'll see you very soon at TED. All right. Peace. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. 
Pod Duty Brew is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. Hey, Keurig coffee drinkers. Did you know that the bold, smooth taste of Dunkin' Cold Coffee can be brewed in your Keurig coffee maker and enjoyed at home? Dunkin's Cold K-Cup pods were crafted to be brewed hot and enjoyed cold. And of course, they're packed with the Dunkin' flavor you crave. Brew over ice and sip in seconds. Because the home with Dunkin' is where you want to be.